Proverbs, we could, we could easily go a year of sermons. There's so much that it addresses in everyday life. So our focus, as we're being led by the Spirit, the, what we're focusing on the rest of this month, we hope, is what God intends uh, for our good and His glory uh, and, and, and the areas of our life that we need it. And so as we examine today the topic of work, moms, I know you're putting in close to 100 hours a week already, and so it seems like I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm sure, I'm sure that among our moms and dads and singles and children and students and whoever else, there could be some things that were getting misplaced. As I was pre- uh, praying and preparing this week, it, it struck me that we've never done a sermon just about work. Uh, we've we've kind of touched on it in a few places where it's come up in the text that we were covering at that time, like in Colossians 3, but we've never spent an entire sermon to this uh, topic. And what was sobering to me as I was thinking about that is we're talking about a, a major portion of our life. Like on average, they tell us we're going to spend 90,000 hours of our lifetime working. And so it's incredibly important that we understand what is God's best for this thing we call a job. And that's not counting hours where we're not paid. That's just hours at a job, hours that we're being paid and compensated. Now, we have spent a lot of time talking about our jobs are part of our mission field. So as the, the Father sent the, the Son, as the Father and Son sent the Spirit, so now the Spirit sends us, fills us, and enables us to be on mission so that wherever we work, wherever we're in school, we're on mission for Christ. And so we need to share Christ with whoever God's ordained and, and sovereignly put into our life. But... That's all we've emphasized. And certainly God has more for us in the workplace than just sharing the gospel, just being on mission. And we'll see that in Proverbs today. He has much more for us to see and know and believe and apply so we can experience his best life, even in our jobs. But let's pray as we begin. Father, we do need your help this morning. What certainly needs to be accomplished in the lives of everyone who's here is way more than one man or any man can accomplish. It's only what Jesus, your spirit, your word can accomplish. And so we confess our total dependency on Christ to come and do good work in us so he can do good work through us and bless everyone around us. We pray you would do this because you love us and because you want to receive more and more glory through your people. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before jumping into how God has created us to have a thriving relationship with work, let's recognize a few broken or insufficient views of work. I'm not going to refute them now, just going to kind of name them and explain them. First, uh, the idea that my job is who I am. My job is who I am. It's very common in our culture that one of the first questions you ask somebody is, what do you do? And sometimes when I just get that simple question, I'm, I'm tempted to respond, well, I, I breathe, I sleep. I eat, I have family, I, work, I mean, I do all kinds of stuff. What do you do? And you know what they're asking. What do you do for a living? What do you do to earn income to help your family, to bless others? Our jobs are so tied into our identities, especially in the Western individualistic achieving American context. Even as believers, we can get caught up in that so much that we root who we are in what we can accomplish, what we can achieve, how successful we can become in a particular career. And when that plan doesn't work out or that plan is threatened or success doesn't happen, it can be a huge blow to our psyche, a huge blow to our identity. Your job or career is part of the role and calling God's given you, but there has to be something more secure to root our identity in than a job or a career, right? And they can come and go, and you can't always guarantee success. The second 
insufficient or broken view of work is my job provides money to do what I really want to do. Now, for many, this may not even sound like it's broken. You're like, that, that's not okay? Like, that seems like that's how it's supposed to work. I have to work to make money. To, uh, so I, I want to pick something that makes me the least miserable, provides the most money and the least amount of time and effort possible so that I can have as much leisure time to do the things I really want to do in life. So we live for weekends and vacations and off time. The ultimate solution to this work problem then is to win the Powerball, to create an app like Flappy Bird and make millions of dollars or some other get-rich-quick plan that would make me independently for the rest of my life, independently wealthy, and and then my problems would mostly be solved. Seems like God cares more about work than to have us waste 90 hours of our life just to draw a paycheck. The third broken or insufficient view of work is my job is only a platform for the gospel. Again, this seems in our circles to be legit because we're sent as missionaries and everywhere in life and our job is a big part of that. And certainly seeing ourselves is important as missionaries for where God sends us if we are Christians, but some fall into the trap of seeing their job only about sharing the gospel. And so work performance and doing a good job can be sacrificed in the name of gospel opportunities. It seems like God has a better and bigger plan to make his great and mighty name and salvation known through sending his people into the workplace to be mediocre employees. It seems like God is after more than just us sharing the gospel. The last insufficient or broken view is my, lo- my job is less important because I'm not in vocational ministry. Again, this has been more of a problem in the church over the last, uh, for, for a long time. The elevation of the sacred space and sacred jobs within the church over secular jobs. More common today, it might be the pulpit is more important calling than anything else done by those in the pew. Is that really true? Is that really what God has ordained for his church and his people? Now, the contrast between these broken, insufficient views of of God's best and work can be seen in the true story made famous by the movie Chariots of Fire. About two Olympic athletes from Great Britain preparing for the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Both of these men were athletes. Both of them went through the same training program, the same dietary regimen, the same preparation to do their best in the Olympic Games. Both of them, in essence, had the same job, and both of them achieved the same success. Harold Abrams won the 100-meter gold, and Eric Little won the 400-meter gold. So same job, same responsibilities, same amount of success. But these men could not have been any different. At one point, Abrams tells his trainer, I'm 24, and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. In contrast, Little, confronted by his sister Jenny, who knew he was preparing to be a missionary to China, was worried that his athletic uh, accomplishments and and regimen was getting in the way of his preparation for for being a missionary. And Little famously responded, Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand, I believe God has made me for a purpose for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So ask yourself, be honest this morning with yourself. When you show up to your job this week, is the attitude of your heart and your job more like that of Harold Abrams or more like that of Eric Little? Do you find this pleasure in doing your job so that when you do your job well, you feel his pleasure? it matters to him or is it more just chasing and running and grinding it out in misery 
Do you believe God's best for your life includes a healthy, thriving relationship with work? Or have you mistakenly relegated that to an area of your life you just need to endure? Is it possible? God desires more for us in our work. Let's see from Proverbs how that is possible. First, we have to be reminded that work is a necessary good that God has created. Work is a necessary good that God has created. Work predates the curse of sin. Sin entering creation did not bring about the curse of work. Right? Therefore, work is not a product of sin. Sin cursed work. Sin may work more difficult and hard, but God himself worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day. God himself put man and woman in a garden to tend and keep it and rule with him over creation. When God chose to incarnate himself and show up in the world as the God-man, God in the flesh, he chose to do that not, not through a military general or through a, a philosopher or a scholar, but through the skin of a humble peasant carpenter. There seems to be strong biblical evidence that in some measure we're also going to be working and serving and busy in the eternal state doing work, but without the drudgery and curse of sin attached to it. So work is something good that God's created that is necessary for our good. Whenever I have one of those days or one of those projects where everything goes smooth, which is like 10% of the time, and there's like joy in the task because everything is working out and it's feeling, you're proud, man, I got that done. Everything, nothing was broken. Everything has got, got fixed. It's like a reminder to me, okay, one day it's going to be like this all the time. And I also need that reminder when things are breaking and temptations to sin are more present and frustrations are building. It's not always going to be like this. Because work is good, it's just cursed. You see this value in work throughout Proverbs. There's just tons of Proverbs I could put up here, but Proverbs 10.4, idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. Now, we've talked about how these sayings are not like 100% biblical promises that you can take to the bank. This is always going to be true. Proverbs are generally speaking, these things are true in life. So generally speaking, you work hard, you accumulate some measure of wealth, depending on your context and your culture. This will look different. So wealth in a first world country in the 21st century looks different than wealth in a third world country or wealth in the context in which Proverbs was written. But generally, there's a correlation between hard work and financial gain. But certainly, there are wealthy people who don't work hard and really hardworking people who remain poor. But looking deeper into the proverb, you see a value on work. In fact, the word diligently carries the idea of smart work. In the language of the Old Testament, it's a string on a bow that is tightly strung to provide an accurate arrow shot. You've heard for years, work smarter, not harder. It comes from Proverbs, biblical wisdom. Work is also valued in a passage like Proverbs 27, 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Whoever looks after his master will be honored. Even the most menial task can be honored and has value. The, the whole idea was a foreign concept to ancient civilizations who were more divided into classes. Lower class people with less dignity did the most menial work. By the time of the Greco-Roman Empire, the highest form of work would be those jobs with the least engagement with the physical world because in their mind, the physical world was bad. You want to do everything you could to get away from the physical world and not deal with the physical world. The upper class were those who worked with their minds. The lower class were those who worked with their hands. Scholars, philosophers, thinkers, upper class. They're doing the most noble work. The language we use today is you have a white-collar job or a blue-collar job. You work with your mind or you work with your back. And what we do is devalued where, where God comes along in the Bible and says... All work has value. 
All work can be honored. This mentality of devaluing menial work was picked up eventually by the Roman Catholic Church. Despite the dignity of Jesus as a carpenter and Paul as a tent maker, the church eventually adopted this same mentality in elevating the sacred work of the priest or pastor above the menial work of the secular laborer. So another benefit of the Reformation was Luther's ability and others to see how our justification in the works of Jesus and not our works turns that whole mentality upside down. Is Luther who said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. God's accomplishing his work through some of the most menial, lower-class laborers of his day. It's God at work in that. Whereas the church was saying, no, God only works within the sacred realm, the priests and the church. His point in his exposition of Psalm 147 was that God's calling of vocation was not just something extended to those employed by the church and the monks, but all people are called by God, created by God to a task that will help accomplish God's work on earth. It was common in Luther's day to view those employed by the church or those living in monasteries as those who could earn more of God's favor because they were truly doing God's work. But Luther himself lived as a monk, and his final evaluation at the end of his monkish life before the Reformation was not that he was more righteous, but that he was less righteous, despite all these years of pursuing God in the best place to pursue God. And this led him to embrace justification by grace alone through faith alone as the gift of God to us through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus did everything necessary for us to be right with God. And this gives us this gift of right standing that he gives us by his grace when we believe and trust in Jesus. And our works don't add one single thing to the right standing that we receive as a gift of God's grace through Jesus. Nothing you do makes you more right with God through Jesus. Jesus did everything. And no bad thing you do makes you not right with God if you're in Christ and Christ is in you. We're secure because of the person and work of Jesus, not our work. So our faith and trust is always in him. Luther's conclusions were then, if my religious works made me right with God, then my religious works would be a higher form of labor. But because my religious works don't make me right with God, only the work of Jesus does, then religious work is no longer seen as a superior form of labor than any other kind of work. The fact that his right standing with God was a gift of God's grace, not something to be achieved or earned, then I'm free from living a life trying to perform or achieve to justify my existence. Christ did all of that. We're not in slavery to prove ourselves in God's eyes. We can't prove ourselves. We're always going to fall short. We'll never do enough. Only Jesus did enough, and we're only right in his eyes because of Jesus. And that makes us incredibly secure and incredibly free and able to enjoy this life that God's given us and to see others as having value and worth and dignity in God's eyes because they're, they're not less valuable or worthy in God's eyes than we are. This makes me free to love God and love my neighbor because God has freely and graciously loved me. I'm, I'm no longer having to do that to prove or myself or earn right standing with God. I can do that through any area of life. Because of all this goodness coming into my life by God's grace and his awesomeness, not because I'm awesome, I can see value and worth in other people, even if they aren't Christians. Because God's at work even in that realm as well. Just because someone is a Christian doesn't mean they're automatically a 
a good parent or a good spouse or a good boss or a good, a good business person. And so therefore we, because God's at work in every realm through his common grace, we can go about our life appreciating the gifts and skills and abilities of all people that are all gifts of God's grace to humanity. Good art, good music, good food, good drink, well-run businesses, good products that make life better, good movies, good literature, good athletic ability. Everything will cause us to worship God for his grace to give gifts to all and show value, worth, honor, and dignity to everyone. Because work is good, and all kinds of work can be used by God to accomplish his purposes and make himself known. Now, certainly there are some footnotes to this, right? There, there's still a place for vocational ministry. It's okay to earn a living from preaching the gospel. Paul himself said that, who didn't earn a living from preaching the gospel. It's okay to show double honor to elders and pastors who labor well. It's a noble thing to aspire to be a pastor or elder. So God still has a place for vocational ministry, no doubt. And the fact that all kinds of work have value and dignity and honor doesn't mean it's okay to just work any job. There are some industries and careers and jobs that exist that increase oppression and injustice in our world that we hope and pray one day will no longer exist, and one day they will no longer exist. Like, you don't have to pray, is it God's will for me to work in the pornography industry? Is it God's will for me to work in the abortion industry? You don't have to pray about that. We want those industries to cease while we still love employees who may be involved and work in those industries, and we hope they come to know Jesus and and get out of those industries because one day they will no longer exist. But we can elevate the labors of others. You have two little boys who love anything with an engine or any big truck. So garbage day in our house is an exciting thing. You can hear it coming. They're running to the windows. They're running outside. Amazed at what this big truck can do and what these big, strong guys can do. And we're able, we have this opportunity to tell them, man, God's made these guys strong and they work hard. And they do this job that nobody else wants to do. Like before, when we lived in the country, you put your garbage in the back of your car and you take it to the local dumpster. There's no garbage, there's no garbage man until we moved to the city. Nobody was like watching me or thanking me or like, look at daddy go. Just, why are you taking the garbage out yet? It takes so long. It stinks. But now we can value these guys and wave to them and give them a birthday, uh, a Christmas gift or a thank you card every now and then. And man, these guys are doing a good job. Martin Luther King, not Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this. He gave a speech in 1956 in Montgomery, Alabama. He was looking back on the success of the bus boycotts and looking forward to the day when people of color would be treated with more dignity and respect. And he said this to a crowd, a second challenge the new age brings to each of us is that of achieving excellency in our various fields of endeavor. In the new age, many doors will be opening to us that were not opened in the past, and the great challenge which we confront is to be prepared to enter those doors as they open. Ralph Waldo Emerson said in an essay back in 1871, if a man can write a better book or preach a better sermon or make a better mousetrap than his neighbor, even if he builds his house in the woods, the world will make a beaten path to his door. He goes on to say, in the new age, we will be forced to compete with people of all races and nationalities. Therefore, we cannot aim merely to be good black teachers, good black doctors, good black ministers, good black skilled laborers. We must set out to do a good job, irrespective of race, and do it so well that nobody could do it better. And then he says, whatever your life's work is, do it well. Even if it does not fall in the category of one of the so-called big professions, do it well. As one college president said, a man should do his job so well that the living, the dead, and the unborn could do it no better. 
If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, street, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great sweet street sweeper who swept his job well. And I wish I could articulate as well as he could. I wish he had picked an easier job to pronounce. God's best life for us includes work. Because God created work as good, and we are wired to work, and whatever work we do, God can be seen. Amen. Secondly, it is possible to love your work. In fact, it's desired by God that you love your job. God wants you to love your work. God just hasn't made work as a means to earn a check or get to leisure time, but he wants us to do what we love to do, and he wants us to love what we do. But you have to dig deep into why you have the job you have. And two of the important elements that we see in Proverbs that are tied into loving our work is community and calling. Both of those are essential to loving our work. We see the importance of our work blessing our community in a passage like Proverbs 10.5. The son who gathers during summer is prudent. The son who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful. Disgraceful. The writer could have simply said, a man who sleeps during harvest is disgraceful, but by saying son, you see the implications of how his lack of work affected the community where God had placed him. It's affecting his father. It's affecting his family. Our jobs and careers aren't just about self-fulfillment or making ourselves happy to the detriment of others. Choosing a career isn't just about how much money can I make? What are the benefits? What do I get out of what I put in? There is a community component that has to be measured if you're going to love your work. How can this job, doing this career, bless and add value to the community around me? Dorothy Sayers, a British writer, wrote after World War II, the habit of thinking of work as something someone does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think otherwise. In our modern view, doctors do not primarily doctor to relieve suffering, but to make a lot of money to to add value to their family. People become lawyers not because they have a passion for justice, but to be better well off financially. She's writing in England after World War II. She said that one of the surprises after the war, World War II in England was the happiness and satisfaction that men who had just fought in the war had had, and they had never had it before. Now, they're all working the same job with horrible pay, terrible benefits, grueling work being in the army, serving in a world war, right? But after the war, they're filled with this immense satisfaction and happiness that they didn't have in their careers before the war. What was the difference? They were working together for the good of others. And it added something that no other career with all the benefits that we seemingly care about could add. A central component to loving your work, does it bless the communities that you're in And maybe it does, you just struggle to see it. And you have to be reminded, like, this is a good thing. What I'm doing is adding to this, 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 and this. But calling is also important. Doing what God's wired and created you to do. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a person skilled in his work? He will stand in the presence of kings. He will not stand in the presence of the unknown. The value here of recognizing someone skilled in their work. Sometimes we struggle to love our jobs because God has wired us for a different job. Now, before you go to your boss tomorrow morning and say, I quit, he wants me to do something different, before you do that, you know, walk that out in community. Maybe God has wired you for something different, but don't just quit your job, wait for God to provide the next opportunity in time. Walk it out with wisdom. But it's possible that we're not operating in the area of our calling and gifting. 
or it's possible we just need an attitude adjustment. Probably the, the job I was most miserable in was a part-time job I had as a bank teller in college. The credible chore and an attitude adjustment every week, every day I had to go to this job. Like, come on, man, you got to do this, you know, enjoy this, do this for the right reasons. God, have mercy, help me. God, give me strength. You know how it is in retail, you're either so busy you can't keep your head on straight or it's completely dead. So the sitting and the waiting and the boredom of that was hard for me. Selling products and I didn't really care about it at all and the pressure to sell products. It wasn't just something, it was something God did not wire me to do. But by his grace, I showed up and did it for almost three years until he opened the next door of something he did wire me to do, which was at the time teaching school. Now, we've all had jobs like that, and maybe we do now. And it could be you're miserable because your heart is off and you don't value the work God's given you, or you're not in the right field and you need to slowly pursue next steps. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God has prepared work for all of us to do for the rest of our lives until your final breath or until he returns. And a big part of that is going to happen in the context of the job that he's going to give you. And so he's got you church. Follow him. Trust him. Jesus, what work have you prepared for me to do for the rest of my life? Whatever path you want me to pursue to get there, I'll do it. Just show me. And you do that in community, so other people are speaking wisdom into that. They love you enough to say hard things or they say good things, affirm you. But ultimately, through it all, you're trusting him. You're trusting Jesus to lead you to do what he's wired you to do. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, tells the story of John Coltrane, the jazz saxophonist. John Coltrane had a religious experience in 1957 that he wrote about in the liner to one of his famous albums, The Love Supreme. He says this, During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, Coltrane says, I humbly ask God to give me the means and privilege to make others happy through music. The story that Keller tells is that he's performing this this song, A Love Supreme, at this particular show, and he's playing a saxophone and just lights out, killing it. If you haven't listened to him, go download some of his stuff later. Just killing it. Best performance he could possibly have. And as he walked off stage, those around him heard him say to himself, Nunc Dimittis. Nunc Dimittis. There's a passage in uh, Luke chapter 2 where Jesus was brought to the temple as a baby to be presented for this sacrificial offering that you had to do when a baby was eight days old and be circumcised. And one of the people that Mary and Joseph and Jesus ran into was this old man named Simeon. And Simeon had been waiting in the temple for his entire life to see the Messiah. And he sees this baby Jesus, and the Spirit of God reveals to him, this is the one. And Simeon says, Now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And in Latin, the beginning of that expression is nunc dimittis. I have finished my good work. Let me depart. Coltrane had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, to make others happy through his incredible gift of musical ability. And God allowed him to experience that, and he said, thank you. I'm good now. I'm good. We can love our jobs when we see the value and benefit our jobs bring to our communities and when we're operating in the gifting and calling God has given us. 
Lastly, and there's so much more. We may come back to this in Ecclesiastes, but just for today, see your work in light of God's work for us in the gospel. See your work in light of God's work for us in the gospel. Some of you may seriously be thinking, this is way too much pie-in-the-sky optimism. You've got to be kidding. Love your job, really? See work is good? It's all I can do to get out of it and go to my job tomorrow morning. The, the hope may be a, a, a flickering candle. And your job, your situation is such a struggle, so uniquely bad, so miserable, you don't see any way it could be better. There's no, way this, there's no way this week won't just be another miserable week of life. Uh, there's so many people who hate their jobs. Like in my, one of my jobs as a chaplain to employees and different businesses, I probably see easily over 200 people in the course of a month. Easily. 10% are not only thriving but love what they do, maybe. Most people, it's just a grind. So this is not just something for us to get. It's for us to share. As we talk to people that we live around and we, we work with and we shop with and we play with and we eat with. So how do we do that if we're struggling? Well, nothing gets fixed overnight in this, but your heart and your mind can change. Proverbs fifteen nineteen, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Now this seems like a straightforward proverb. If you're lazy, life will be hard. If you're upright, life will be easy. So don't be lazy. Just work hard and life will be go, go good for you. But if you think about it, you're like, wait a second. My life is hard, and I'm working my tail off. I'm doing everything I can do, and there seems to be nothing but thorns in front of me. Grinding it out, and it just seems to get harder. How can that possibly be true? And then you think about it a little bit more, and you're like, wait, who are the upright? Am I the upright? Like If you, if you think about it more, if it is true that none are righteous, no, not one. If it is true, Psalm 130, verse 3, Lord, if you keep, kept an account of our sins, Lord, who could stand? If that's true, then none of us are upright. There was only one who had no sin. There's only one who could be called upright, truly. And the amazing gift of the gospel to us is that he came and took on the curse of sin for us. A curse that, if you remember from Genesis 3, was signified in thorns. Thorns and thistles being added to the ground that makes our work harder. And a man who came at the end of his life had a crown of thorns put on his head. As part of the curse and punishment of sin, he was willingly and lovingly taking on because of our sins, not his sins. When work is hard, when work is a struggle, when life is miserable in your job and the hope is gone and you don't know how to go on, look to Jesus and the work he did for you. The work he came and willingly did for you. For him to say, don't put your hope and your joy and your peace and your love in your job. That's going to come and go. You have no control over that providing your love, joy, peace, and hope. Put your love, joy, peace, and hope in me, in my work. And as you labor and work hard and try to get through your job, I'm an unending source of love, joy, peace, and hope. I never fail. I'm never the boss who will grind you down. I'm never the coworker who would drive you crazy. I am the brother who always sticks with you. I am the friend. I am the shepherd. I am the confidant. Look to me as your source to get through what the situation that I've ordained for you to go through right now. 
Look to me for wisdom, how to maybe change the situation as you move forward and pursue possibly a different career. Look to me to even in hard times to glorify me and enjoy me. This is why Paul could write in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. Now, in our context today, think employee, employer. Employees, obey your bosses with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. You're not obeying your boss. Obey Christ through following the rules of your job. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves to Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. As masters, bosses, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. And the hope we have in Christ is not just that we will endure the situation he's put us in with this unending source of joy and hope and peace, but one day the curse will be reversed. One day he will return one day the toils and struggles of this jobs and this life that he's called us to live out now will be gone. One day we will work and it will all work out and be perfect and good and joyful forever. In your labors, look to Jesus. Work for him because he's already worked for you. He alone is the perfect boss, king, and ruler. He will continually supply your heart with peace, love, joy, and hope. And guys, if you don't know Jesus, like if you don't have this kind of relationship with Jesus, that you're trusting in him, turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, that looking to him to be the source of all of this, resting in him to be your life and your joy and your hope and your peace. Like if you don't, Christ is not in you and you are not in Christ, by God's grace, let today be the day of your salvation. By God's grace, believe and trust in Jesus today. Come alive in him and today receive the life that he has for you. That will be, that is, that is the only sure way to God's best life for you. Not just in work, but in everything. I want to pray. And uh, as we have this time of prayer, this time of reflection, I want to offer you the opportunity to sit in silence and listen to the Spirit of God speaking to you. Maybe He's already spoken, and you just need a few seconds to talk to Him, to pray to Him. So we're going to take some time to listen, to talk to the Lord as the musicians come forward, and then I'll close in prayer. Jesus, thank you for the good gracious, loving work you've done for us to be reconciled to our Creator, our Father in Heaven, to know you, to love you, to live for you, to worship you, to experience you and enjoy you in all of life, even our jobs. Thank you for what you make possible through your good work. And I pray that right now that would be a reality in every heart in this room. And if it's not that those who don't know you and don't have this with you would turn from their sins and trust in you and receive life and forgiveness. For most of us, it is. Jesus, I ask that you would help us enjoy it, celebrate it, sing about it, 
share it with others. Share it with people we work with who are struggling in misery. Help us to give our lives away so that others would know you and know you deeply and fully. Thank you. You can do all of these things because you love us and you love our city and you're working out good things in our midst for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.